Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of old terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The length of life takes the leading place among inquiries about events following birth. Is a quote from the astronomer, mathematician, and geographer Ptolemy, one of the prominent scholars associated with the Great Library of Alexandria. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today, someone at the helm of an organisation helping people live longer, healthier and happier lives. Our guest is Hisham El Ansari, Chief Executive Officer of Bupa Asia Pacific, serving more than 6.5 million customers and leading over 22,000 people. Prior to his appointment as CEO, he held the roles of Chief Financial Officer and Strategy Officer and Managing Director of Bupa Health Services. He was previously Chief Financial Officer of Maya, Integral Energy and Air Services Australia. He was also a non-executive director of Very Special Kids. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform, and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Hong Kong, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory. In today's episode, Hisham shares with us a unique view of Australia's healthcare and aged care sectors, the state of the sector, the challenges across the industry, and the opportunities to unlock better outcomes, experiences, and overall quality of life. We also hear of Hisham's journey, one that found him challenging and changing the paradigm. Starting as the young Turk wanting to prove himself, finding himself across retail, energy, aviation, and construction before joining the healthcare sector and making the leap from CFO to CEO and how he decided to become the leader he wanted to be. So sit back and enjoy Changing the Paradigm. Hisham, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Easy question to start with. What's wrong with the Australian health system? Uh, well, maybe I'll start with what's good about the system. And uh, the great thing here in Australia is that we have a world-class health system that uh, is reflective of both a public and private mixed system. And I think as Australians, we should be very proud of uh, the quality of care that universally we get across the system. When we look at the big picture trends of what's happening to us uh, from a health standpoint though, we find that many of us are living longer, 
but we're living longer with chronic disease and often for 20 or 30 years. And those with chronic disease often have multiple interventions across our health system. They'll be dealing with the primary care system, with doctors and GPs, allied health from time to time. Uh, they'll have periods when they need to go into hospital. They'll be supported by pharmacology and diagnostics. So our intervention is across the whole health system. And sadly, the element of coordination and integration is not as great as it can be. Mm -hmm. How many times do you go to see a specialist and they hand you the clipboard yeah. asking you to fill in all your details like we did 30 years ago? Yes. And so whilst there's been a lot of technology and innovation, it's yet to be coordinated and integrated such that you can carry around your own health record in a way that you can actually control it for yourself, yeah. but also ensure that the clinicians and providers who you're interacting with have a holistic view of your health situation. And I think that's the both the challenge and the opportunity of how we might be able to improve on the system that we've got today. And fundamentally, it's about getting the right care in the right setting at the right time. So that word insurance, does it put out the right connotation, do you think? Well, I think insurance is really about peace of mind. When we assure our home, our car, we don't get to the end of the year and say, oh, I never claimed on that. We sort of say, well, thank God, I've got it there for, you know, in the event that something goes terribly wrong. And I think health insurance in many ways is similar to that, particularly the hospital component of that. We have it there as a protection, as an ability to be able to choose where you want to go, who you want to treat you. And that provides peace of mind. But I think all of us in the sector recognize that we need to add more value. We need to add more value to the younger people yep. who kind of think that they're healthy and well mm -hmm. and uh, are never going to get sick. And we also need to add more value to those who are trying to support and do the right thing and manage their health and health care. And so I think a lot of us are seeking to play a more active role across the whole continuum of individuals and their life stages, uh, and in particular, their health journeys over time. And inevitably, that means we need to do more to invest in helping address that lack of coordination for our customers um, by presenting them with information about the treatment options, about the clinicians and facilities that are available for different treatments, so that they can make their own informed choice about what they'd like to do when inevitably they're confronted with having to interact with the health system or how they can delay and uh, slow down the progression of disease and uh, maybe areas of susceptibility that we all genetically have. If I'm going to make a choice, Ishan, this is a bit of a tricky one. And I go and see my GP and he says, um, you've got a certain situation here. I'm going to refer, you need to see a specialist. As a lay person, it's incredibly difficult to work out who's the good specialist or not. No one tells you. Is it going to ever be a ranking or something like that? It's all nice to hear that, but it's a closed, it's closed quarters as we know. I never hear a bad word about a specialist. How do I, how do I rank them? Yeah, look, it's, it's a very common question that I get, and I think when you stand back and look at some of the big mega trends that okay. are facing into healthcare, yep. uh, one that I'm particularly interested in is what I call the empowerment of the consumer. Okay. So historically, consumers did 
what you've said. You mm. get sick, you go to the doctor. The doctor says, uh, you need to do some tests. They run some tests and they come back and say, well, you need to see a specialist. And generally at that point of vulnerability, we're happy to be guided. Go to this person or go to that person. Now, as a consumer, when you go to interact with other industries, you've got a level of information symmetry. There are places you can go, you can search it up, you can Google, you can do some uh, of your own research to sort of say, well, I'll go here rather than there. In health, it's still a little bit of about connections and, you know, who who that GP knows. Yep. Uh, he might play golf with them on the weekend. He may have gone to uni with them. And, and so the, the, the question really that most people want is how can I be in a position of being more informed? Yep. And... This notion of consumer empowerment is driven by technology, mm -hmm. and I think there is a role for organisations like ours and others to help provide some objective data on who's out there, how often they've done procedures, their success rates, the experience of patients when they go to them. Yeah. Those kind of uh, patient-reported outcomes or patient-reported experiences, uh, I think, have some value, and we're seeing in other countries around the world that third parties are springing up that are trying to provide that element of consumer information, mainly to help enable them to make an informed choice mm. and to be in the driver's seat of their healthcare rather than responding and reacting to you know referrals from people uh, that may or may not be objective. What is Booper? Well, Booper is a, a fascinating organisation. It grew out of very humble beginnings in 1947, post-war England, uh, communities got together to chip in a few dollars, absent any national healthcare scheme. So when one of them got sick, they were able to use that money to help uh, address uh, and, and get make them better. And so from a series of provident, local provident organisations that sprung up around the country, uh, a group of businessmen uh, wanting to give back to the community decided to aggregate all these organisations and small entities into what is now the British United Provident Association. And the purpose of Bupa, which was uh, embedded in the articles of association of the company, was to help prevent, relieve and cure sickness and ill health of every kind. And that fundamental objective still remains current today. We have no shareholders. So everything we do that has fueled the growth and expansion of the organisation over the nearly 75 years yep. now has been about actually delivering on our purpose, which we've contemporised to be helping people live longer, healthier, happier lives, and more recently added and making a better world, because we see that as an important element, particularly the intersection of human health with the health of the planet. Those two elements are where we can see that we can add value as an organisation to more people in more places around the world. And the scale of the organisation? Well, it's huge. From those humble beginnings, uh, we've now got 30, 40 million customers operating in multiple countries around the world. Here in, uh, in Australia and in the Asia-Pacific region that I look after, we've got 6.5 million customers. So more than one in five Australians is doing business with us in some shape or form. Our DNA, of course, goes beyond providing insurance. It was an organisation that 
delivered and continues to deliver on healthcare. We ran and still do hospitals and other primary facilities in places as diverse as Spain and Chile, right through to Saudi Arabia, yeah. uh, in, uh, in Hong Kong, through Poland and broader Europe, and of course, our homeland uh, in the United Kingdom. Does the model differ in each of those jurisdictions? Yes, we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach. Yep. Um, health systems are different around the world, and whilst we're involved broadly in the same categories of care, whether it's funding of insurance or provision of healthcare, fundamentally we structure our businesses to suit the circumstances of the local environment that we're operating in. So I remember in the UK and in, and in Asia, a lot of corporates Yes. Partner with the likes of yes. and most employees have signed up in summer. That's right. So are we going to head that way at all? Not necessarily. So okay. in Australia, we're very much a retail oriented business. Most of our customers are retail consumers. That's why we have retail stores uh, scattered throughout the country. In some other uh, parts of the Bupa world, corporate insurance is much more a common phenomenon and much less on the retail side. So we have multiple different business models to suit the environment that we're operating in. So Hisham, where does that name come from and where do you come from? Well, I grew up, I was born in Cairo and uh, my parents uh, migrated to Australia in the 1970. So I fundamentally came here as a young child and, and grew up here. So in the way I think, the way I operate, uh, it's very much Australian, but it's nice to have the background of that cultural diversity and uh, appreciation of other cultures and other ways in which people live around the world. And I think it's that richness has really added to my perception of life and my perception of the world that we live in. So you couldn't speak English when you came to Australia? Barely. My dad spoke a little bit of English yeah. and um, I don't have a huge recollection actually, but I started school here yeah. and obviously I must have uh, figured it out pretty quickly and and I, I think having seen my uh, own boys grow up, they're, they're quite sponge-like at that young age where they can, you know, absorb, uh, you know, many multilingual kind of uh, perspectives and they don't see that as being unusual. So dad was what, a, a lawyer, mum, a music teacher? Yeah, dad was a lawyer in the corporate world and, and my mum was largely stayed at home looking after us but also had trained as a, as a piano teacher in the day. Okay. And... Um, you know, my father, who passed away, sadly, uh, a bit over a year ago, yeah. when I asked him what caused him to migrate, yeah. he sort of said, because we were living a reasonably comfortable middle-class life, uh, and in that era, uh, particularly after the 67 war, there was a sense that the the politics and direction of the the country were not something that my dad felt was heading in a good place. Yeah, right. And at the same time, Australia, Canada and the US were actively seeking uh, migrants. Yep. And so, as the story goes, he said, I put in an application to all three. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he said, uh, whichever one comes up first, we're going. And uh, Australia was the one. And um, he proceeded to sell all of our belongings. And he said, did that very consciously, wow. recognizing that the transition was not going to be easy. But that if you if you sort of had a foot in either camp, that you were more likely to give up uh, and and return at the first sign of obstacle or a hurdle. And so he wanted to sort of jump in with both feet, yeah. 
and uh, and take the plunge and um you know in the end he died at 84 having spent more of his life here than uh, than in Egypt burning the boats is a big is a big call yeah no retreat hey canberra is that where they decided to to move to out of all the places to go to yeah it's uh, it's quite perverse when you go from a city like cairo <laughs> right. which i think at the time was probably 10 million people to canberra which was a couple of hundred thousand it's a bit of a culture shock and and the reason of course is the only person we knew in australia was a second cousin of my mum who happened to live in canberra and uh, and she said come come to canberra it's clean it's uh, it's safe um, and uh, and that's what we did so we arrived i remember on a klm flight and uh, arrived in sydney spent a night there and then made our way to canberra by car uh, and that was the uh, that was the beginning of a journey into Australia. Okay, so you went on and studied and did well, uh, and then you built a career in moving into public sector. You want to talk us for that, and, and was it much choice, I guess, living in Canberra? Well, that's the thing. Um, Canberra is predominantly you know, comprised of public servants and professionals uh, and those who are providing services into that sector. So I, I wasn't really clear what I, what I wanted to do at the time, and I remember, in fact, when I was in year 12... A few of my friends were uh, lining up one Saturday and I said, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, we're going to sit the public service exam. In the day, you used to sit an exam, they'd rank you, right. and then when an agency needed somebody, they'd take them off the top. And I said, oh, come along and do it for the fun of it. You know, It's not one you can study for. And I went along and did it. This was about August uh, in when I was in my last year of school. And by November, I'd got offered a job. Uh, with what was then the Department of Housing, uh, actually it was the Department of Finance initially, and um, I thought, okay, this is pretty good, uh, $8,000 a year as a base grade clerk. I knew I wanted to go in uh, and on and, and to university and, uh, and study economics, as it turned out, and I thought, well, I'll do this for the holidays and then quit, and um in the experience, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed working. I enjoyed the engagement. Uh, I felt like it was related to the area I was studying, so that there was a bit of synergy there. And I thought, we came just before the start of the academic year, and I said to my dad, I want to go part-time. Now, in the early 80s, that was a little bit unusual. Mm. And he said, well, I don't know if you're going to be successful at both. You need to kind of focus in. My, my dad had a very strong philosophy of education and uh, all of our family went to uni including his dad which is right. quite unusual he yeah. was a town planner and so he was worried I would somehow uh, lose my way and I said no I'm going to go part-time and I'm going to work and I'm going to make it successful we disagreed on that but I was quite determined and stubborn and tenacious and I still am in many ways and so I, I did and so for the next five years uh, I worked full-time ended up moving agencies to the Department of Housing and Construction, continued to go to uni uh, in the evenings and uh, do some study on the weekends and managed to sort of get through, uh, you know, five years, what would have been three years full-time. Yeah, right. Uh, and I was quite proud of myself. And, and by the time I'd finished, I'd sort of got to a middle management level where I was in a finance area. Your specialization was finance. Yeah, it was sort of, so it ended up being that way. It's a classic fork in the road and you 
you take you know the left and and you keep going and um so that was the case and and as i finished i thought well actually i become quite fond of doing more study i took some time off and i went with a friend of mine and we traveled around europe the sort of thing that i hadn't been able to do because uh, i was kind of working and studying and then i had that um that fork in the road again in terms of do i go on and do more study in economics or do i branch out and i found out i had a love of how organizations come together and uh to deliver a you know an outcome and so uh i couldn't see myself as a professional economist but i i wanted to lead i wanted to bring people together to create something and so i decided to do an mba now in the day there was only one place you could do an mba in canberra the anu didn't have it which was my original uni so i went to the university of canberra who had a partnership agreement with monash university right so i started an mba before it was fashionable in the late 80s mm-hmm. and uh, did that for another four years part-time Ooh, you're a sucker for it was <laughs> when i look back it was uh, it was a pretty challenging period particularly uh, you know my friends are going out and partying and it's like now i got to do an assignment but i think it served me it served me well um in many ways and i i i wouldn't change it actually i i learned a lot uh reinforcing the theory with the practice and it was just really good that it, there was a lot of relevance to where i was working and what i was doing because although it was government they were all government businesses yep. and so the commerciality of the activity was really helpful and i don't know if if you remember greg but in the 90s was a very important period for microeconomic reform absolutely in the day and and really um we were part of that and part of government that Probably was some of the most exciting days it, it was very exciting i yeah. mean the what was the department of housing construction became australian construction services which was a privatized had to earn all its money by bidding for work yep. and uh, ultimately it was um contested in the private market for work and ultimately there was the question well what is the government doing um building buildings when there's a perfectly robust private sector there and so the pathway for privatization and i got to live and experience that whole journey uh in practice of microeconomic reform so what were you 26 years old and you're a cfo of the department of housing and construction yeah well that's that's pretty good achievement isn't it it was a great achievement at the day and uh you know like many things a bit of luck and being in the right place at the right time Uh, the ceo at the time who was running australian construction services you know took a bit of a liking to me in the sense that he could see the ambition and the 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 drive that yeah. i had and at one point he actually jumped me over i was the assistant director for finance in the act office okay and uh he jumped me over the top of the director and i became the national finance manager and uh, you know still to this day i still keep connected with uh, the person who was my boss at that time yeah. who was such a uh, an honorable and uh, generous guy that he ended up working for me and was a real gentleman in terms of his conduct and uh, i take my hat off to him what do you reckon he saw i think he probably saw the the young turk uh, wanting to prove himself and um wanting to make his mark in the world i think whether you call it that migrant you know work ethic I, i saw my dad had suffered quite a lot 
in terms of the transition that backwards. Yeah, it, yeah. it came at the expense of his own career, and I felt yeah. uh, undoubtedly an element of pressure to to succeed and and make his choice to migrate, one that he didn't regret, um, leaving family, friends, yeah. all of that. So I think, you know, as I've reflected back over the years, there was clearly a, a strong drive to succeed and an impatience to make my mark on the world. And, um, you know, I think people are probably, people saw that, um, good and bad. Yeah. And, um, it was a, it was a fascinating experience to be sitting around an executive table of people who were largely in their forties and fifties. And I was the young Turk doing an MBA. Uh, a lot of those guys got there through their experience and hard work and probably can't say on the program, but there were a lot of explosives that were used in meetings in those days um, because, you know, it wasn't a PC world that we're living in now. And um, when push came to shove, as the young guy who's studying an MBA, often they'd say, well, what the F do you know? <laughs> you know, I've been in this industry 30 years. And just because you go to uni and you do, you know, study these new management theories, I can tell you that's not how the real world is, buddy. And so it was quite a intimidating sort of situation for a relatively young lad. And I, I sort of decided then and there that uh, you had two choices, that you were either going to kowtow to that and fall into line, or you're going to look them straight in the eye, stand up straight and say, you know what, I've got every right to be here like you. And And it was that kind of, I think turning point for me that really gave me a lot of grit and determination and ultimately it was what helped them respect you as an individual and a peer because they were really testing the strength of your character and whether you were going to go to water or whether you were going to stand up and fight for what you believed in. So I think uh, without question as I look back that was a, a really uh, important uh, experience for me in, in a formative period to give me that strength of character and that strength of purpose uh, that uh, I, I think I've benefited from over the years. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Hisham El Ansari. In our next episode, I sit down with Tony Lowings, former global CEO of KFC. And then the way we looked at it was that fundamentally the way that you get high performance is that you empower people and you have the ability to motivate people to be better than what they are right now and to achieve things they didn't think were possible. And if you can create that environment, one, you make people feel better about themselves, you make them feel excited about the future, and secondly, you get better results. So it's a virtuous circle. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. You're one of the few who have actually made the move from public sector mm -hmm. to the listed market, and also in a market during a time, or a role during a time which was experiencing an enormous amount of change when PE was floating around. So maybe you want to talk us through. So you were, I think you were CFO at one stage with Maya, were you not? I was. Um, b before I went to Maya, I spent another decade in the aviation industry um, and the only other large corporate in Canberra was Air Services right. Australia. Yep. So um, having spent the first decade of my life with Australian Construction Services, I then decided uh, we were on the cusp of privatisation. I decided it was the time for me to move on and I took a step down to go and become a financial controller within air services. I looked after their facilities management division and over time I gravitated to the corporate centre and then ultimately uh, I got the opportunity to be CFO there for five years. 
and it was a fascinating industry, you know, technology, risk management, safety, yep. uh, so much learning and so much um, innovation yep. in that sector. And again, I spent a decade there, missed out on getting the top job and thought, well, this is time for me to, to take a different angle and and also time for me to move out of Canberra. So I remember having a chat to my wife and I said, well, I'm going to leave this organisation and uh, the, the choices are for us to go to Sydney or Melbourne. How do you feel about that? She said, well, I'm totally fine. Uh, my wife grew up in Sydney and she was quite uh, looking forward to the opportunity to be closer to her parents who still live there. Uh, she started looking up schools and suburbs and places we were going to live. And, and uh, in between those plans happening in slow motion, uh, I got a call from a headhunter to join the new Maya management team that had just been bought out by TPG, right. American Private Equity. And I thought, well, that sounds like a cool thing to do. So instead of going to Sydney, we ended up going to Melbourne uh, and I, I was commuting for the first bit before ultimately uh, the family joined us. And, and here we are, 16, 17 years later, uh, we're but loving life in Melbourne. Big move. An it was. An enormous move in the sense of one sector to another. It was. So you moved out of, well, you moved into a totally new sector, totally new environment. I mean, that takes a lot of courage and obviously you had to be quick on your feet. Um, why did you accept the role? I constantly like to challenge myself. I have this thing called a get up in the morning test. And <laughs> if I get up in the morning, I'm excited about going to work, then I know I'm doing the right thing. I also know that uh, when I don't get that feeling, my performance starts to deteriorate and I'm not the best version of myself. So when you uh, feel like it's time for a change, I don't mind taking some risks and jumping in with both boots, okay. uh, to, so to speak. And it sounded like an opportunity that was firstly get me out of the Canberra market and yep. get into a bigger place with more things going on. And a household name. As and a household name yeah. and as part of a new management team. And it was a very heady period, retail. I mean, even back then, um, people were predicting the death of the retail store That's right. uh, by category killers who were just picking off yep. bits of profitable business. So, look, it was a very interesting and exciting period. Um, as you know, in the private equity world, it's about pace and it's about, you know, change, rapid change. I probably would say that from a cultural standpoint, I wasn't, it wasn't probably the best place for me. Yeah, go on, elaborate and, on that because you've said that comment before. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like uh, there was a sense of wanting to deliver an outcome, uh, which was fair enough. But in terms of the, the what and the how, are two dimensions that have guided me uh, quite significantly. And when you think about, you know, what satisfies you as an individual, I think you want to be working on great things, but you also want to be doing it in in a way that aligns with your values and aligns with your culture. And I, I remember um, there was a period there when I had a chest infection and I'd go to the doctor, he'd give me antibiotics, and I was going backwards and forwards about four or five times over the space of six or seven weeks. Right. And I got home one day, and my wife said, this is no good, I'm taking you to the hospital. I said, I don't need to go to the hospital. She said, no, you need to go to the hospital. Uh, and my wife's a physio and a bit connected in the clinical world, and so I went reluctantly, and I'm lying in accident and emergency because 
uh, you know, looking at the, the white fluoro lights uh, as they do behind a little uh, curtain cubicle. And, uh, you know, they'd figured out I wasn't dying, so it was like we'll be back in a minute, and that minute was like an hour or two hours. And it sort of dawned on me that part of the reason I wasn't getting better was that there was a bit of dissidence that was going on in terms of um, the environment I was working in and and how that was um, aligning to my own personal values. And I made the decision then and there that I, it was time for me to move on. And um, after they pumped me full of IV antibiotics and I did get better, um, <laughs> I went into my boss's uh, office and I said, look, I'd like to give you the six months notice. And um, the moment I did that, I felt a huge relief come off my shoulders. I uh, did my six months and left without another job to go to. I felt like I needed to just, you know, get some equilibrium back into uh, mind, body and soul. And I needed a bit of space to do that. So I became the house husband and I was dropping the kids off to school every morning and going for walks and, you know, having lunches and coffees with people as I sort of thought about, well, if there's an opportunity for me to do something different with my life, this is it. Seeking the nobler purpose? Correct. Well, I mean, also just a career, different career direction. Like I'd sort of gone up, my, my life had taken a certain direction up until then and I thought, well, you know, I was sort of like 40 and early 40s and I thought, well, if I wanted to do something different with my life, start a business, do something different, well, this is the moment. And um, probably a victim of your own um, strengths, um, you know, analysing all the different possibilities and doing business cases, you kind of talk yourself out. At the same time, the headhunters are largely ringing you about the same sort of thing that you're familiar with. And so there's CFO role here and a CFO role there, and it's like... Easy placements. Exactly right. <laughs> So eventually, I remember I was out walking one day um, and the phone rang and it was a headhunter and they said, oh, we've got this opportunity with a company called Booper. Uh, I hadn't heard of Booper. So I was quietly searching what Booper was and who they were and I landed on the UK Booper page because yeah. Booper didn't have a website in Australia. And uh, they said, look, this is a exciting opportunity to help bring that what was then the number two player in the sector MBF and uh, and be part of a, a big merger process with uh, with Booper in the day to create you know a formidable force in the Australian healthcare market and I I sort of felt like I was comfortable moving between sectors because in natural fact one of the observations I've got is that you know Sectors uh, have their own language and their own business model, but fundamentally the challenges of large organisations are very similar. They're about people, they're about accountability, about bringing resources and action together, about creating the right environment for people. And so I was sort of comfortable that you could figure out the business model, but was it the right organisation? And that's where I, building on my past um, experiences I sort of probed that area of culture and and uh, you know the perspective of Booper on those things and I said well I don't know if I want to apply I want to meet the CEO first and yeah. we went out for a coffee with the CEO at the time and he was a really nice bloke and uh, we got on really well and I met him again and I still liked him and he liked me and uh, I thought well yeah maybe maybe this is the right organization it was an organization 
that was and still is focused around care, care for individuals and care for our customers. And I think it was a great choice. And here I am 14 years later, still a part of Bupa and still trying to continue the legacy of the organization that goes right back to those foundations in 1947. You were brought in to help drive that M&A deal, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. So success is a great way to come in too, isn't it? Work across the whole organization, meet all the stakeholders exactly. internally and externally, yes. get yourself known. Yes. Okay. And you've done another number of roles in Bupa. Yes. Okay. Then you get the big challenge, which is you're going to be made CEO. You're going to be made CEO from the internal ranks. Mm-hmm. So therefore, all those who are your peers are now going to suddenly report back into you. It's almost going back to that 26-year-old. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about it, but it's not easy, is it? I was fortunate in that I had a three months notice between when they offered me the job and when I was actually going to start. And I, I tried to use that time effectively to challenge myself and sort of say, uh, what kind of a leader am I going to be? And where am I going to focus my attention? Because I was very conscious having been in and out of CFO roles over the, my lifetime that yeah. the prevailing wisdom would be, oh, the, the, the new CEO is the past CFO and therefore he's just going to be all over the numbers. That's right. I thought, well, I have to change that paradigm, that belief. And uh, I thought long and hard. And as I observed other CEOs, you know, there's the CEOs that focus on the numbers because there's a turnaround story that's needed, the CFOs that focus on the customer because there's a real need to improve the customer focus. And then there's CFOs who focus on the culture and in the environment. And I felt that for me, that was the right button to push at that moment. And so whilst all of those things are relevant, and I'm a big believer in the service profit chain, I kind of feel that if you can create the right environment for people to be the best version of themselves, that will result in outstanding customer service. And if you've got outstanding customer service, the results will take care of themselves. So I'm a big believer in that notion of the service profit chain, and I thought the button I'm going to press is culture. And I then started to think long and hard about what I saw in and experienced in Zoopers. That sounds nice and warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Well, it, it worked for me because it also worked for something that I'm personally passionate about. And it was a it was not starting so with the numbers. Are, people aren't cynical with this the new chief exec talking about culture. Well, I hope they weren't. I mean, it's probably something to ask them. But I then applied my thinking to sort of say, well, if I'm going to stand for culture, well, what is it? What particular aspects of culture am I going to stand for? And yep. I reflected on my time in Bupa and where I've seen Bupa be its best and where I've seen Bupa not be its best. Mm. And I sort of wanted to find that happy ground of leveraging the great things that we have about our culture that has been built up over many, many decades, but at the same time address those things that were maybe getting in the way of us being the best version of ourselves. And in my observation, we were very nice to each other. We had a very caring culture right. uh, that manifested in lots of meetings, lots of uh, discussions to try and get everybody aligned, and that came at the expense of getting outcomes done quickly. Yep. And so I came up with these four cultural imperatives that I called, and the first one was clarity of accountability. So being clear about who is accountable for what. I'd often say that committees have no power 
no committee in this organisation has any power to make any decisions. It's only an individual. Who is that individual? And it's important for them to understand that they are the decision maker, that making a decision doesn't mean getting everybody to agree, that part of decision making is to ensure that you're giving the ability for people to put their point of view forward, but you're also saying, okay, I've heard you, and now this is the direction we're going. And so this idea of being being clear about your individual accountability, I think, was quite central to what we needed to overlay on our culture. The second aspect was uh, focus. I found that at Bupa we wanted to open up a whole lot of different things, a lot of different initiatives, you know, an ambition to achieve lots of things. But in the end, progress was quite incremental. And my hypothesis was if you could shrink the range of activities and narrow the focus, you could actually go deep and, and, and achieve outcomes much more effectively. And I'd seen Bupa do that in my time. Mm-hmm. And, and when everybody was aligned, that's when we were at our best. And that led to the third imperative, which was around genuine collaboration. Bupa's a, you know, as a, you know, diversified business with multiple different business lines. And getting everybody to row in the same direction is much harder in practice than, uh, than it sounds. But again, if you are clear on your individual accountabilities, if you are focused on an agenda that is going to make the most difference to our customers and our stakeholders, and if you're working collaboratively across the organization, then that's going to lead to the fourth imperative, which is the ability to move at pace to get things done. And so that narrative I kept repeating over and over at town halls, at meetings, at you know discussions with individuals and groups uh, until I bored myself listening to myself say the same thing over and over. But I think at least people tell me it was a helpful overlay to the evolution of the culture that had been developed and I hope it continues to be because they were genuinely the things that I felt were getting in the way of us being the best version of ourselves. So you've been in the role for a couple of years now, Hisham. Are you comfortable with what you've achieved and and the pace that you've set? Never comfortable. I guess it's part of my nature to to constantly think we could do better, we could go faster. Um, It's actually three years and was about to clock over into my, you know, start the fourth year. So mm. it's amazing how quickly that's gone by. Actually, mm. in many ways, it seems like just yesterday. But I do feel that there is a um, an optimum life for a CEO. And uh, as I've looked around, um, you know, it seems to me like the five years is about the right time. And either uh, you're going to get the bullet because you're accountable for something that happened in the organization or it's time for you to hand the baton on to the next person because it, you know, in that five years you've probably accomplished as much as you're going to accomplish. And it's really important in that leadership role, I think, that you're passionate, you're energetic and you're bringing new ideas and new perspectives. And um, if you can't do it in five years, then I'm not sure that you're going to be able to do it in seven or ten uh, so that's the kind of frame I have, you know, give or take yep. uh, a bit of time uh, on the edges. But so I feel like I'm two thirds of my journey and there's still a big agenda. Uh, we didn't expect COVID and we didn't expect Omicron. It certainly slowed the pace of change 
as I would have imagined it, but it's also accelerated some things that have been uh, not unhelpful in terms of the way and where the world is going. And particularly some of those mega trends around health, I think there's been huge advocacy and take up of telehealth services, for example. People in lockdown have been much more focused on their health and well-being, both physical and mental. That's accelerated some trends that were already nascent mm-hmm. um, pre-COVID, but I think it's helped bring them to the fore and may indeed help uh, organisations like ours to um, be part of that revolution that's taking place in the world of healthcare. Aged care. Do you want to talk us through that? There's been a Royal Commission. There must have been some learnings from that. You've obviously thought long and hard about what that presented. Yes. How did Bupa reflect on those outcomes? Well, it was a particularly challenging period. Any Royal Commission and the, um, you know, the, the, the media and the hype that surrounds those things um, can sometimes be quite detrimental to those who are on the ground delivering care every single day, 24 hours a day. I think it's evident that at an industry and a sector level, uh, we could have done better. And I think it's evident even in terms of our own company that we could have done better. And I'm on the record as having acknowledged that there were periods there where we lost our way and took our eye off the ball. And when you're looking after our elderly, there's no room for that. You've got to be on the ball 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that requires good people good people who are well-meaning and trying to do the right thing. but They get, they get pretty poorly paid. They get poorly paid. Yeah. It's a function of the, I guess, at a societal level, uh, we have to acknowledge that people are getting older. Yeah. They're living longer. Yeah. A proportion of those people are going to need uh, full-time care mm. that can only be provided in a residential care setting. Mm. The structure of the industry and the funding in the industry is not conducive to paying people more. It's not conducive to creating the sort of experience that many of us in the sector want to be able to create. And I think it's there's a huge opportunity for governments to face into this reality. And the Royal Commission uh, shone a light on the challenges of workforce inadequacy, workforce underpaid, systems of governance and process that could be better invested. And so there were a lot of learnings for us as a company and for us as an industry. Mm. And I think the government has come some way to addressing those concerns, but not enough. The average funding for a resident per day is around $250, $260. Now, that's just over $10 an hour. And with that $10 an hour, you've got to, to provide the accommodation, the food, the clinical services the entertainment, the gardening, the cooking, the cleaning, it just doesn't stack up. Mm. And I think this is a problem for all of us. It's not just governments. It's also about recognising that for those of us who can afford to pay, that they should pay a bit more in terms of the contributing to their care in the last stages uh, of our lives. And this is something... Is that means-tested you're talking about? Well, means-testing already exists to some extent, but the... There's a caps on how much you need to contribute um, uh, to your own care. And I think it's something like $28,000 in your lifetime. So if you're living in a multi-million dollar property in, you know, in uh, Manly or Mossman or Brighton in Victoria, 
is it right that the maximum you can contribute is $28,000 in your lifetime? Or should we sort of say that for people who can afford to, that they should be contributing more? So there's a when you look around in other jurisdictions, and, and Boopa's in a good place to be able to look at the experience in other countries, um, universally there's a strong mix of public and private funding. And even in New Zealand, um, uh, residents there contribute to a greater extent. And I think there's an opportunity for that to happen here. There's an opportunity for governments to face in and solve this problem because really it's a bipartisan problem and it needs long-term uh, solution in order to ensure that we are uh, paying the right amount for the to support the care of our elderly Australians uh, in a way that we would be comfortable putting our own mums and dads into those facilities. And, you know, people do their absolute best. When you go to a home and you look at, you look at people who are working there, yep. they're certainly not doing it for the money. Yeah. And I take my hat off to them. And I would also say that as a, as a community, we need to celebrate our aged care workers. We need to see it as a noble endeavour right. uh, that people... Uh, from you know school, say that I want to make a career out of looking after elderly people. That should be something that's celebrated and recognised. And uh, I think sometimes we tend to focus on the things that go wrong, which is a very very small proportion of the things that go right every single day. Yeah, and Royal Commissions typically that's what they're designed to find out what's wrong, right? It's the narrative. Correct. Correct. But you talked about shining a light. A number of Royal Commissions throughout history have had a lot of lights. Sean, yes, and nothing ever achieved long-term from them, unfortunately. Now, you're saying the government would be nice if they leaning in and are leaning in. What else should they be doing, Sean? This is, you've got how many years left? Two years, maybe three years, whatever, we roughly yeah. around the fringes, maybe yeah. longer. Yeah. Okay, so on your watch, you're a key contributor and an influence in this space. Is the government going to step up to the level that you, you hope to, or are we just going to hear the same rhetoric? Well, look, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that some progress has been made. So in response to the Royal yeah. Commission, the federal government announced an $18 billion funding package to the sector over the next four years or so. Yeah, and if I gave you gave you the chance to give me the spreadsheet as an ex-CFO, $18 billion compared to what should be the number, do you think? Well, I think if we look at that $18 billion, half went to support home care. Yep. And that's a great thing, keeping people in their homes for longer uh, is good for them and it's good for society. But at some point, some portion of those people can no longer stay in home and they need the environment of full-time care, whether it's because of dementia or deteriorating health. Look, it's hard to say, but I wouldn't be surprised if the right number was a an additional 4 to $5 billion a year. And whether that's all government funding or whether it's also a combination of government and private funding, I think it, it is that order of magnitude. Right. Okay. Uh, industry accountants who have done the numbers across the sector say that 60 to 70% of operators are losing money. And you can't have any sector, even if it's a not-for-profit, it still needs to be able to wash its face. And so I think this is a societal problem. It's not going to go away, and it needs courageous leadership to face into that problem, like was done with the NDIS and other important social causes that we actually face into the problem 
once and for all. And that's needs more money. It needs more training. It needs more recognition and acknowledgement of the people working in the sector that they are doing a great job. The NDIS has had its fair share of criticism around efficiencies, money being spent, the scale of it. So it's all terrific that we're doing it. But have we got the management on the other side of the fence issue and you've worked both sides to deliver? Or is it just inefficient? Look, I, I think it's a it's a challenging sector. Absolutely. And, and the first part of the equation is to face in to the need that it needed to be better funding. And the government did that. The government of the day did that. Yep. The second part is how you rally the whole provider network to ensure that individuals who are eligible, they can have their eligibility assessed promptly and that they can access the services. In that regard, the services in the home care market, in the private market, are actually in competition with home care and other things. And there needs to be, you know, change in that element as well. Mm. So uh, I think we have to recognise sometimes it takes time for equilibriums to be established, but without the right funding, then nothing else is going to happen. And I think there's a lot of people trying to do a lot of good in delivering the support that's needed for people who are eligible for the uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme. And similarly, there's a lot of people trying to do good in the aged care sector. But we need the structural foundations of the sector to be supportive and conducive to further investment and further development and, importantly, encouragement of labour into the sector. And that's going to be the biggest issue not only today, but into the future as we look at the way demand and supply is panning out. And in broader health, if you had your magic wand, what would you actually, had the chance, what would you change? Well, as I touched on a bit earlier, I think uh, the ideal of any healthcare system is that it can deliver the right care in the right setting at the right time for the individual. And if we can deliver on that broad ambition then you're actually optimising at a society level, whether it's public or private or some mix of the two. That is the ambition. And then as you unpick that ambition and say, how can I translate that into practical reality? You find then that one of the biggest challenges is how you connect all the different parts of the health system Mm. so that they are centred around the individual patient who's travelling through that rather than uh, designed in in a way to optimise the position of each of the individual players. Now, that's easier said than done. It's complicated by a Commonwealth state funding mechanism that uh, is disparate um, with states looking after the hospital environments and, and the feds looking after the primary care and community care and pharmaceutical benefits. And so we need to cut through that to be able to ensure that not only are we dealing with uh, the needs of individuals who need to interact across that whole system in different ways, but also that we're investing more into the prevention and well-being space. My numbers might be a little bit wrong, but when I last looked at this, something like 2% of our spending went on to prevention and 98% of our healthcare spending went into the treatment of uh, illness and sickness. You're right. Now, that balance needs to change. People are taking action. When we look at 
individuals spend in health and well-being, that market is growing by 7% a year. So individuals, as, as individuals, we're very happy to invest in our own health, pursue new well-being regimes, new types of exercise, new um, and interesting you know, eating programs and uh, well-being programs and meditation and all of these things are growing at a rapid rate, uh, funded by individuals to support their own health ambitions. And I think we need to recognise and help support that by connecting those and enabling those individuals to be able to take better care of themselves. Uh, we've recently dabbled a little bit in that space and mm-hmm. we've we set up a, a new health marketplace called Benefit Pocket, which is a, a kind of an app that's designed to connect providers who have something to provide in the healthcare system with consumers who want something. And, you know, Boop is in the middle leveraging our knowledge of the sector more broadly to try to connect those individuals like any other marketplace. It's still fairly early days. We launched it late last year and we're very hopeful that that will address a need that we see out there um, to help channel towards providers, credible providers, um, and also provide some incentives embedded into the uh, into the way the marketplace works to encourage people to continue to invest in their own health and well-being. And this is something separate to Booper as an insurer or Booper as a provider of care. Mm-hmm. It's actually about trying to face into this, you know, emerging trend uh, around consumers wanting to take a more active interest in their health and well-being. What's going on with the statistics and people in terms of those leaving insurance? and those not taking up insurance? Interestingly, during the last two years with COVID, uh, whenever there's a health crisis of sorts, we see people uh, gravitate towards making sure that they're going to be well protected and their families are well protected. So we've actually seen participation in health insurance increase Mm -hmm. over the last two years. Now, that's on the back of uh, successive declines in participation for quite a long period of time and that's because I I guess that consumers are sort of saying I don't necessarily see as much value and if my budgets are squeezed then maybe I'm going to look at some of the things that I don't see as much value in and I think there's a real opportunity for us in the sector to sort of say how can we make the products and services we provide more valuable particularly for younger healthier consumers because they're the ones that typically have uh, tended to to drop out or not participate to the same extent as we would like. And it's probably something that not many people are aware of, but there there is a, a regulation, an act of parliament, which is called the Private Health Insurance Act, which defines what products and services that we're able to provide. Now, that act was established in the 1970s, and I think the world has changed since then. Mm. So... Part of uh, you know our lobbying efforts with uh, government and opposition is to say, look, is it time we looked at that? Is it time that we were allowed to offer a broader range of services that meet the changing needs of our consumers? And in so doing, you know, if a company's job is to provide yeah. for the products and services that customers want, yeah. there's a little bit of uh, a blockage to that in the current context of um, 
of the regulatory environment. So that you're talking about the full ecosystem here, what you have to offer, and the government's not moving forward on that at this at this moment. Well, I think the government sees the potential, but it also sees the challenges of opening it up. So let me give you an example. In terms of new areas of care, for example, we know uh, that um, you know some of the things like Pilates and exercise yep. and those things, consumers have a real belief that that has value to them. But the evidence base, the scientific evidence base isn't always there. It's a little, little bit like vitamins. I know a lot of doctors, if you ask a doctor, what do you think of vitamins? They will often say, uh, I don't think much of it. If you're eating a balanced diet, you don't need it. Yet there's a multi-billion dollar vitamin industry in this country. That's Consumers right. think differently. And sometimes the science lags and the evidence base lags the actual experience of consumers. And I think in the current context, we're only allowed to provide services that have adequate scientific backing in those particularly alternative areas. But if our consumers want to undertake a novel new therapy or treatment, you know, my view is we need to make it available. Whether um, the science supports it or not, I think if con consumers will make the choice, we're not here in a paternalistic way to define what they can and can't. And my sense is that we need to be more flexible to recognize that the world we're now living in and the world uh, that is ahead of us is very different than the world that we've come from. Uh, in the 1970s. So where does it differ, Hisham, compared to other parts of the world, the offerings that a group like Bupa could offer? Well, health insurance is very different in this country and in, in a good way. So, you know, most countries around the world, as you might know, Greg, uh, insurance is often about the pricing of risk. Yep. And so when it comes to health insurance, in most countries around the world, you want to take up cover, that's fine. They'll give you a 50-page form to document everything that you've ever had go wrong with you and maybe go wrong with you, and then they'll decide whether to insure you and if they will, uh, what overlays or what exclusions they might put in. In Australia here, we have this wonderful system called community rating, which is risk is averaged across the whole population. And so one of the advantages of that, first of all, is that we cannot deny cover to anybody who wants it. And the second thing is regardless of your health status, we cannot differentially price. So the product for an 80-year-old individual with multiple conditions versus a 20-year-old young athlete will be exactly the same, and the pricing of that product will be exactly the same, and we cannot deny cover. And so this notion of community rating plays into Australia's general sense of social justice and equity. Mm -hmm. And what it means is behind the scenes as insurers, we risk rate the whole population. And then depending on who you've got as your insured population, Bupa tends to have an older uh, population based relative to our competitors, we will receive funding from this risk pool to offset some extent of the additional burden in having an older cohort whereas others may have a younger population and they'll be payers into this risk pool. So it's a way of averaging risk, if you like, behind the scenes. And it's a really integral part of the way insurance works in this country. Digital journey, where is health insurance companies in, in that, on that journey? Well, like many organisations, uh, you know, leveraging our digital assets and our data assets and trying to 
you know, they're not ends in their own right. I mean, to me, digital is about improving the customer experience yep. with us, yes. making it easier, simpler, faster. It's also about improving our own back office and making the processes that go towards delivering of services to consumers more efficient and more effective. So many of us are investing many millions of dollars to try and accelerate our positioning um, around those things because consumers rate organizations not based on their competitors, but actually based on the best of breed experiences that they have in their life experience. And so when organizations compare Boopers digital experience, they're comparing it perhaps to the banks and, and other you know, leading organizations, they're not sort of saying, well, Boopers experience better than our next best competitor. And so we're working really hard to try to accelerate with legacy systems that often underpin organizations like ours with long histories, uh, legacy systems to try and contemporize the consumer facing experience with apps and straight through processing and uh, all of those things that you would just come to expect AI interactions, um, in our case also omni-channel experiences, we've got retail stores, we've got telephonic contact centres, we've got online, uh, you know, historically they were all seen as different channels but today we want to blend those channels into a, a single experience which means if you start your journey on the web and you get to a certain point and you want to pick up the phone and talk to somebody that they won't take you back to square one again. And, you know, what's your name, what's your date of birth, that they would actually be able to see where you, where you are in that journey and continue on from there. So this interoperability, I think, is really important to simplifying the customer experience, which to me is what digital is about. It's not an end in itself. It's about making it easy to deal with uh, organizations like ours. And the corollary of that is being able to leverage and use that data in a meaningful way to help consumers navigate and help ensure we place our focus uh, where it matters most and our resources because, you know, the big thing about most organisations, particularly uh, insurers, is affordability. And affordability is driven by how efficiently we run our business and how efficiently we manage the interaction with third-party providers to deliver the right care to the right individual at the right time. Did you have any self-doubt? When someone sat you down and said, look, we're going to make you the CEO? Always. I think uh, a bit of doubt is a good thing in terms of, you know, am I good enough? Am I ready? Is this the time? There have been a few false starts over my career. And um, I remember in some of those that I kind of thought at the time that it, it was really disappointing and that, you know, I knew everything there was to know about that business. And then years later, I look back and I think I'm so much better as a leader today than I was back then. So we are limited by our own understanding of ourselves and you don't know what you don't know. I, I think having a bit of bravado mixed with a bit of apprehension in equal measure is probably a, a healthy thing to embrace a new opportunity. So what is leadership to you then? I've reflected a lot on that and I think my view of leadership today is different than what it may have been years ago. When I look at where I spend my time, it's all about the people. And so to me, leadership, particularly senior leadership, is about getting the right person in the right role and creating with them 
the right environment that's going to enable them to be the best version of themselves. Historically, it was often about solving problems and uh, on top of the knowledge of every part of your business, and that's probably where I'd come from in a mindset. But my leadership evolution, if you like, has led me to recognize that actually the single most important thing you can do as a senior leader is to surround yourself with the right people and to ensure that you're enabling them to deliver across the areas that they've been engaged to do. And um, from time to time, I find myself dipping in to problem solving and I have to remind myself to pull back again and say, no, actually, my job is to orchestrate the team to create that environment, which is why culture going back to something I said earlier, is so important because mm. particularly you would know this in today's uh, day and age, attracting and retaining high-caliber talent is much more about the environment and the values of the organization that they're joining in addition to having a remuneration that is you know, within the context of, of market. But people leave organizations because of bad leaders. They don't leave um, because they're working too hard or they don't like the job. And so in this war for talent, uh, it's even more so important that leaders create the sort of environment that is going to attract talented individuals and ensure that you're creating that environment where they can perform. And it's much less about you doing that and much more about you creating those enablers. And I think that's been my leadership learning over the years. You notice much difference since we're coming out of COVID because the Use the language, the war for talent has definitely picked up, as we all know. Mm. Um, how are you seeing it as a CEO? Because it's critical to retain those top people. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the border's been closed for two years. Yep. Um, you know, we were getting a couple of hundred thousand net migrants. We are getting a couple of hundred thousand visa holders and students and workforce. That's significant. You know, half a million a year, close to a million out of a working population of, That's what, right. 10 or 11? That's right. That's a material and it's had led to a material crunch more generally at all levels within the employment sector. We, you know, we struggle to get aged care workers. We struggle to get data analysts and digital people. And I think everybody's facing into very similar challenges. And so the importance of the values of your organization, the culture of your organization, word gets out. People talk to each other and they're well and truly past the spin of what you might say about your organization in advertorials and publicity. People actually are well connected through social media and share the reality of what goes on in organizations. And if people are happy, they'll tell their friends. And that's often an important part of advocacy that sits behind the scenes. There are a few senior people that uh, I always insist on interviewing uh, not only, of course, my direct reports, but my direct reports, direct reports who are coming in the top, you know, leadership talent of the organization because I see that that's the group that I can have the greatest impact on the top 170 leaders in our case. So I always insist on doing the final interviews and uh, I have to tell you in the last year or so, uh, sometimes in doing those interviews, I felt like I was being interviewed by the candidate. It's like, tell me about you and whether I want to join your organization. It was really fascinating to see that dynamic uh, and that, uh, that power dynamic shift. As a leader, everyone has their own style or their own rhythm mission. Um, where do you take the time to think? What's the average day look like? How do you communicate? As you say, you've got to communicate, communicate, communicate. 
how do you do it? Well, in the, in the good old days when we were allowed to travel, I used to spend a lot of my time on the road. Um, Bupa uh, has uh, 500 touch points uh, where we've got people in Australia, New Zealand, and Hong Kong. Uh, 22,000 people spread across a very vast network, and there's no substitute for walking into a, a dental clinic, an aged care home, a retail optical store, and meeting the people on the ground, getting their perspective on how they see the world, how they see, you know, the head office of Bupa, if you like. And that used to be a really valuable, rich source of information. I'm sure my direct reports probably loathed the the travel because I'd be sending off emails and messages and saying I bumped into Mary at, you know, Box Hill and uh, she's saying there's a problem with this. And it's like, what's going on? Intuitively, it makes a lot of sense. So I really love doing that, and hopefully now that we're back uh, able to travel, it's my first trip to Sydney in quite a while, that I'll be doing more of that again. In terms of thinking time, it's obviously one of the big challenges is time and diary management, and one of the things I try and do, uh, not always successfully, but is to block out Fridays and make it as much as possible meeting-free days. And that's the opportunity to be able to move on to a different plane, away from approving, reviewing and meeting people on particular issues and actually being able to stand back a little bit and reflect on where we're going as an organisation, where the world is going. Now, that's the ambition and often when there's a squeeze, when there's a problem, it ends up getting loaded into that Friday because that's where there's um, some space in the diary. But I think, uh, you know, my immediate team, my office, my chief of staff, my executive assistant have been pretty good at trying to preserve some element of those days for us to be able to just brainstorm and and do that what-if thinking. It's also a case I love to walk, I love to walk our dog, and often you get your mind wanders at those moments and um, it makes connections that you may not have ordinarily made, and it it's then provides a bit of a seed for something that you can kind of nurture and grow. But reflecting on what I said earlier as well, it's important that you create an environment where you can actually draw up ideas yeah. from people. It's not about you as the as the leader coming up with all of the grand plans. We've yeah. got a great team of diverse people, uh, diverse experiences, diverse industries, and you know we've got a committee that we call the Strategy Development Committee, which is we meet every month for a couple of hours and try and sort of sit on a different plane of thinking to think about um, some of those bigger issues that can often get sucked up in the in the day-to-day. So there's no magic bullet, but I think you've got to try and provide some space formally and then allow the organic process of just thinking and conversations to sometimes trigger new ideas or new thoughts that may be worth pursuing. What did you learn about the art of communication through COVID then? You're not walking the floor then. I uh, learnt a lot about Teams meetings. Um, <laughs> for example, I used to hold at town halls every three months in different cities with our people, with our leaders. Uh, during COVID, I started to do it every two weeks on Teams. So we would have and still do. Uh, every two weeks, um, I have either a senior leader Teams hookup where it's the top 170 people. A few of us will kind of provide a few thought prompters on things that are going on and then we open up to questions from anybody who's uh, in that senior leadership group about anything at all that's on their mind. 
we then alternate that with uh, a town hall across the whole spectrum of Booper. So frontline, middle managers, anyone is invited and we typically get three to 400 people a session and um, often actually the, the best questions come out of those ones. Uh, I think some of the times the senior manager is a little bit more reticent to to really put themselves out there, but frontline people have no such hesitation. They, <laughs> they're very happy to ask the tough question to, to, of their leadership team. And I think it's a, it's a really good leveler because, uh, it's helped keep us engaged in what really matters to the frontline and connected to what really matters. And it's an opportunity for us to also communicate directly, not via written messages and so forth that they can hear and see their leaders in action and being put on the spot. So we've been doing that for the last couple of years and I, I think it's something that will definitely continue. There's no substitute for the face-to-face, but I, I think we can intermarry both the virtual and the real-world experiences into something going forward that reflects the best of both media. You know, I think there is no going back in many ways to the world that we've come from and I think we need to accept that um, uh, we have all changed, our attitudes have changed, our behaviours have changed and we need to embrace the new flexibility that we've found because you know, at an organisational level I've been amazed that we've been able to deliver more broadly on the expectations that we've set ourselves with some you know, ups and downs in different parts of the portfolio naturally. Mm-hmm. But across the organisation I've been very proud of what we've been able to achieve together and that's given me a lot of confidence about flexible working and about the different approaches that we've employed and it's certainly it's not something I would have naturally thought of um, two you know two years ago uh, having spent most of my life getting up getting dressed going to work you know people working from home was sort of deemed to be ah yeah you're working from home Having lived it, experienced it, and seen the outcome from that, I'm much more comfortable embracing a flexible environment. Of course, recognizing that the vast majority of our people, of the 22,000 people that we employ, 16,000 are frontline workers exactly. who don't have the choice to work from home. And for them, we need to uh, acknowledge and reflect on what flexibility means for them. It might be flexibility in rostering, flexibility in working three days and taking two days off. For you know, so I think we're in this process of evolution. We're in this process of understanding what of the experience that we've lived in the last two years we may be able to carry forward, and what that might look like. And I'm trying to approach that uh, with an open mind and reflect on the different experiences of different people depending on their circumstances. Those with, you know, young children, those who have had to manage looking after elderly relatives um, as part of trying to work, those who like to work at odd hours but still get stuff done. Um, So I think we've come out of this uh, experiment with a lot of knowledge about that maybe the one-size-fits-all approach that we've traditionally had is not the answer going forward and increasingly people who are joining the organization you know amongst the top questions is what is your policy on flexibility what is your policy on on working from home Um, all of that has become embedded into our psyche 
Yes, it's no doubt, uh, Hisham. That's the uh, the number one question coming every chief exec at the moment. What is the working week going to look like? A couple of things. Let me just challenge you a couple of those points. Productivity. Do you believe you're going to get the same level of productivity by allowing people to work three days a week, four days a week, as opposed to five days a week? And if I look at and you're an ex-CFO, if you went through the productivity stats and efficiencies, that's the first thing. Second thing, going back to being a young Turk at the age of 26, who did you look up to and observe to watch to become a CEO? Did you do that via Zoom or were you in an office seeing that? Third thing, a female is actually going to get left behind. And the only reason I say this, a senior female spoke to me just very recently and said, my greatest concern is when I look at the stats coming back in, I know what's going to happen. Every bloke's going to go straight back to the office. Can't wait to get in there. Well, the females, you know what they're going to be like. They're probably going to try to balance it all, manage the household, manage the kids, do the role, out of sight, out of mind. And in 15 years' time, we're not going to have advanced our cause or where we wish to be in this whole debate. Three points there for you, Shim. Yeah, three tough questions, Greg. <laughs> Let's start with the first one on productivity. I, I don't know that you can get the same productivity from working three days a week that you can working five. I'm open to be convinced. But what I can say is that productivity for the people that we've had working from home Yep. has been as good, if not better, than what we had having them come to the office. And one of the, the biggest actual indicators, for example, we've got 400 people in our contact centres. Mm -hmm. So we have very explicit data on average speed to answer, average handling time, number of calls that are taken. And I can categorically say that all of those people are working from home and actually productivity has gone up in that period. All right, but what about productivity at the senior end, Isham? The senior when, end... When you're not necessarily measuring by the hour, stopping and clocking in that yeah. sense, but actually in a discussion, and it's not so structured that I actually contribute. Yeah. Now, contributions what is significant. Are you missing out on that? It's interesting. De definitely there's something that's lost because, you, you know, I say to people, you don't teams bomb somebody and say, hi, Greg, I'm just dialing in to have a chat and see how you're going as you would for example if you bumped in to them in the kitchen or randomly had a five-minute conversation so definitely there's something there that you're not getting okay. i'll come back to that because mm. i think there are other ways in which you can address that in a virtual world which is less about thinking about office as one spot you go to mm -hmm. and more about the virtualization of the office so you could catch up with people in a local cafe you can as is happening in some organisations, they're creating satellite offices in the suburbs where there's a place which you could come together and connect. So there are evolving models and solutions to address some of those. But I'm a great believer in that teams have the best ability to determine uh, who's delivering and who's not delivering. So there are people who can often be good actors and the we you know when the boss is looking at them they you know the old uh, my car is the last out of the car park sort of thing oh john must be working really hard i always see his car there but i don't know he's actually out gone to the pub and you know and as people tell me there are people who come to work and are not productive because they're 
walk wandering around having chats with people and actually getting stuff done. So one of the things I've come to uh, realise is that teams actually are the toughest critics on each other. And when you're part of a team and there's a, you know, divvying up of work and, you know, you do this and I do that, if that person consistently isn't delivering, the team will be the first one to identify that, not the boss. And I think they're the, they self-regulate. And that's something that I think is a, is a guard against trying to be too explicit in trying to control and manage people, what time they come in, what time they leave, you know, we're not living in a scientific management world. There are parts of, you know, manufacturing and, and those aspects where optimization of time and so forth is critical. But by and large, you know, we're working in areas where creativity and output is much more the value add of humans and more of that routine is being relegated to machines and technology. And so if you want that, then you need to empower people's creativity and ideas. And sometimes you get that um, not by the fluxion of time, but by the right environment, which really generates those powerful uh, advances. So I think that's, again, an important element as to why culture and creating the environment is so important to actually delivering superior outcomes for your customers and ultimately a better performance for your stakeholders and, uh, and shareholders. I think the... The question of um, gender and uh, and whether the current circumstances favour or or create a you know a barrier for women in particular, I think, is an interesting one. I I won't profess to um, have the answer to that. I think there's a lot that we will learn as we go through this experiment. And I I know a lot of female executives who whose husbands are the ones that stay at home and look after the kids. So yep. I think we have to be careful not to judge on paradigms that we've traditionally experienced but at the same time i think i think there probably are some elements of um, being visible and being connected and that that actually do advance i think we've all benefited from being connected to individuals who have taken an interest in our career and nurtured that and it's often by getting to know you better by getting to know who you are and building a rapport and a relationship it is much harder to do that in a virtual world, particularly if you haven't had the benefit of that personal connection first. I mean, we had a number of new people join us in lockdown, and so the only experience I've had with them is virtual. And uh, on occasions when I've come to meet them in real life, it's like, oh, I didn't realize you were six foot five, you know, because <laughs> you just can't tell in uh, in the virtual world. And, and as you start to warm up and find an area of, you know, at the end of the day, you know, humans are gregarious creatures. We like to connect. We like to interact. We like to sometimes deviate from the focus of the task. And in building that rapport, it actually accelerates and helps you go faster later because you've planted the seed. I mean, particularly in large organizations like Bupa Multinational, you know, we used to have an annual conference of senior people who'd get together in one place or another and people think is that just a jolly um, you're getting together in Spain having a good time actually it was the glue that held this organization of you know 80,000 people together mm. and so you could pick up the phone to somebody in South America who you've had a drink with at the conference and yep. say mate I really need your help on this I heard you were working so 
there's a lot of value in those um, human interactions and the rapport that's built, and I think we can't substitute that. We need to ensure, and I think I'm an optimist, so I think models will evolve that will take the best out of the virtual world that we've experienced and bring in some of the things that um, maybe have been underweighted in terms of that and create something new that we may not have thought of. Um, on one level, this is innovation. This is innovation in practice. Um, and so I think we need to stay open to the possibility and uh, and be optimistic in the belief that our fellow mankind will find ways to extract the best from both models and come up with a hybrid that actually works for everybody over time. So you don't think we're going to lose a, a generation of leaders then? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think um, if we look at human history, uh, one of the great things that humans uh, we've been able to do is adapt, adapt to changing environments, changing circumstances, and there's no reason not to believe that that adaption won't continue to happen and will continue to thrive in ways that today we may not have imagined. When it comes to that day, you flick the lights off and walk out the door at Booper. What do you want to be remembered for? Well, that's an easy one, Greg. I mean, I want my legacy to be that I've enhanced and added to the culture of, of Booper. And uh, um, what I said earlier was actually I think when you take on a role uh, like CEO, you need to be thinking what is my legacy going to be and working backwards. And that was exactly the point that I want my legacy to be that I've left Booper in that little bit better place than what I inherited. And, uh, and that means evolving the culture that has been built over 75 years and adding my few bricks to the wall of past leaders who have built the organization and taken it to where it is. And to me, that would be a huge recognition personally and satisfaction that, that I, I move on to whatever's beyond uh, Booper with the knowledge that it's in good hands and that you're passing the baton on to somebody else. Hisham, if you were to look back at that young man, that CFO, studying his MBA, sitting in that boardroom, what advice would you give him now? Uh, my wife often says that I need to slow down and smell the roses. So, you know, our greatest strength is often our greatest weakness as well. And to me, I've been driven, I've been focused, and wanting to get from A to B in the shortest possible time. And actually, um, as I've gotten older, I, I kind of realize that sometimes taking a circuitous route can actually get you there faster and take the time to reflect on the present, enjoy the moment, smell the roses. And tomorrow, you will get to where you want to get to if it's a day late or a week late or a month late. Does it really matter? And uh, and that's been my biggest uh, life reflection is that if I was talking to the younger version of myself, I'd say, slow down. Uh, you're going to get to where you're going to get to eventually, but enjoy the moment, enjoy the present as much as um, you can imagine and envisage what the future might bring. On that, Hisham, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to No Limitations.